Did you ever hear this expression? It's as easy as riding a bike. It's just like getting on a bike. It's an expression that many of us use. It's an expression that is used to convey many different applications. I was interested in this expression because of how it ties in to the study we're doing today. And this expression is used when you're learning a new skill. So if you were perhaps never a singer or a dancer or something like that, it's, look, it's easy as riding a bike. Or if you are returning to something that you used to know, obviously it was used originally with maybe someone in their 60s going back to biking and saying, hey, it's easy as riding a bike, right? You, you used to do it. It's a learned skill. You never forget it. Or again, the idea of new technologies, getting on a computer for the first time. Look, you can do this. You'll learn it. It's understandable. It's as easy as riding a bike. Overall, the, the expression is really versatile. The expression is something that can be used in multiple ways. But here's the thing. This is why I wanted to tie in. The idea of getting on a bike is not simple. It isn't something that is just a few basic skills. I did a Google search on what it takes to ride a bike, and five major categories came out. You gotta have balance, you have to have steering, you have to have the ability to function with pedaling, that propulsion, you have to be able to figure out braking, and especially if you got the handheld brakes, and then you also have to be able to shift gears if you have a bike that shifts gears. And when you look at all of that, it goes even more detailed. I just went through five major categories and then I can go into the concept of balance alone. And when you're dealing with that, you're dealing with having to figure out forward motion. You're having to figure out, again, coupled with the steering that you're doing, but you're steering while you're balancing. Your weight distribution, you have to figure out your centrifugal force and how that's gonna function you're having to work out the gyroscopic effect and all of that with the counter steering as you go at high speeds, a technique that to maintain balance. Now, overall, you said, hey, it's just as easy as getting on a bike. Now, where are we going with this? The idea is what seems to be simple is often complex. And when you can understand the simple, you can do more complex things. And for example, in riding a bike, I thought, let's look at Leah Rasmussen, all right? Little girl, eight years old, she does what I wish I could do, right? Let's get on a unicycle. I was gonna have her do it in service, but uh, didn't wanna have her fall or have anything happen. Or, but look at that, look at her go. Now, you're 10 right now, right? And this is when she was eight, and I know that she can do far, far more, okay? And uh, I've seen her do more, but this is just absolutely amazing. And um, I know maybe a couple of others of you might be able to be able to do this, but look, there's so much complexity that goes into this because it is just not, not simple. All right, let's give her a hand. (laughs) All right. Look, there are so many things that you think are simple, and yet they're not. 
Some would say, well, it's simple like breathing. Breathing isn't simple. Breathing can think about everything that goes into the brain, into the brain sending signals to the lungs and that movement. And when a person understands that breathing isn't just a simple concept, you can take techniques and you can learn how to sing. You can learn how to basically do a, a lot of different things with your breathing if you are someone that understands the complexity. Same thing with moving your fingers. You say, well, moving my fingers, that's a simple thing. But the person that gets the idea of how it works again within the brain, the nerves, the muscles, the dexterity, and before you know it, you're a mechanic, you're a, you, are a, you are somebody that could maybe be a piano player, you could be a surgeon, because you know how to use the complexities of the simple. So where is all of this going? Well, the challenge is today is that we are looking at a text of scripture and I want you to have a series of aha moments on what we look at when we come to this passage of scripture in Revelation chapter 20, verses one to 10. And I want you to understand that we are coming to perhaps one of the top 10 passages in all of scripture. Mentioned that a little bit last week and I'm coming back to it again. This is a text of scripture that pulls so much of the theology together of the entire Bible. You ought to have several aha moments. And I said last week, and I reiterated again, the reason we're taking a couple weeks to go through this is because it is so important. There are things that happen in this text that you can just easily read, and it seems very simple. But if you miss it, you're missing some of the most deep theology in all the scripture. I mean, last week we read, if you'll look at chapter 20, verse 3, and it says that, that Satan is released, and he is going to be released for a short time after being captured. And then it t- says again that he is released when we get later into the chapter. And the idea is, why must he be released? Why? You read this, and you just simply go over this. And what I want you to have is an aha moment. For those of you who were with us last week, I referenced the fact that an aha moment became very popular. There was a TV show, a woman named Oprah Winfrey had it, that she had these aha moments. Well, we're having an aha moment. We're coming to a text of scripture that is about the thousand year reign that's in the Bible that we believe as a church is literal, and it is, it is filled with passages that you can easily miss and understand the significance. And I think for the people that get this, there is a sense where you have these aha moments. We're coming to a text of scripture when what you're gonna see, we're gonna talk about a thousand year reign on, a thousand year kingdom on earth. You see down in verse two, he lays hold of the dragon and, he bound, and, and Satan is bound for a thousand years. Verse 3 talks about a thousand years. In verse 4, at the very last line, a thousand years. Verse 5, a thousand years. We have said that this is a literal 1,000-year period. And why this is so significant is, and why we're pulling so much together, is when we started our study of the book of Revelation over a year plus, I said that when you come to the book of Revelation, there is no direct quote of the Old Testament. You don't come and say, 
you know, chapter 1 is referencing Daniel chapter 12 specifically. You don't get that. But what you do get is over 500 allusions to the Old Testament. And when you come to verses 1 to 10, this is where it's been mind-boggling for me as we work through the text. It becomes very clear that the entire Bible is coming together in these 10 verses. And, and, and for people who don't hold to this being a literal 1,000-year kingdom, this all goes over their head. But also, you don't want to be superficial in, in your study. You've got to understand how this all comes together. We're also going to be talking about this, that God is putting on a demonstration apart from his goodness. There is no goodness. Now, what are we talking about? We're talking about trying to figure out why in the world God captures Satan. Why in the world does God capture Satan and then he lets him go? And, and maybe it's something that's never clicked in you, but you think to yourself, why in the world, God, why in the world did you ever let Satan into the Garden of Eden? <laughs> why did God do that? Why did God let Satan tempt David? Why did God allow Satan into his presence to come after Job? Because here, when we all of a sudden, and we talked about this last week, where we talked about God being one who's letting Satan go, is doing something bigger picture. And what he's trying to show us, and we're going to get into this in our next study or the study after that, is that he's putting on a demonstration that apart from his goodness, there is no goodness. And I want you to dwell upon that. Now, some of you feel like you don't have time to take down some of these notes and this screen. Listen, if you just want to listen, listen, and I will email you this entire slideshow. So just let you know that because I was told this is note heavy and I get it. But I want you to grasp this because when you grasp this second point, it helps you understand your own life, your own sanctification. And third, we're going to see you're being trained for this kingdom. You say, what? What? Think about it. You know, on Resurrection Sunday, we talked a little about it. And then for Palm Sunday, I talked about the fact that... There's a parable in Luke chapter 19. This parable talks about the fact that we are given minas or talents and abilities. And the people who are faithful are going to be put in charge of cities. Have you ever thought that your life on this side of eternity is so that you who are believers are being trained to manage those cities? That you are being trained so that when you are in this kingdom that's coming that you have wisdom from this day and age. Because this day and age, you are going to have memories. We are going to remember the people that we live with. We are on this side of eternity. We are going to remember things that we went through. How do I know that? Because I'm not just pulling this out of thin air. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 talks about the fact about us being reunited with our loved ones, the loved ones in Christ. And so when we look at this idea of of being trained, it begins to help you understand why I'm 40 years old and things aren't now perfectly easy. Why I'm 50, 60, 70, 80. 
Because God is trying to show you as you go through the thousand-year kingdom that you're going to be in charge of these cities, that you're going to realize that sin is never going to be relenting. And we'll talk more about that. So yes, I want you to be tr understand that you are being trained for this kingdom. You say, Mike, where are you getting all of this? Because what we're talking about in this chart, and we've sent this out to our church, and I know that people get overwhelmed with charts, is that when we come to this period, we have talked about the fact that we've studied the book of Revelation, the seal, trumpet, and bull judgments. And if you're visiting with us, the book of Revelation is the final book of the Bible. It is the book where God brings everything together as he gets us ready to go into eternity. And he has given one last wake-up call to mankind. He has told mankind, get your act together. Please, I am not playing games about sending people to a literal place called the lake of fire. I am not. And I am sending these seal judgments where one-fourth of the world dies. I am sending trumpet judgments where one-third of the world dies. And I am sending these bold judgments where when it's all said and done, every unbeliever in the world will die. And, and, and so when we come to this part here, we understand it's built with two, three-and-a-half-year three parts, seven years. And when we read Revelation chapter 19, it was this line here, the return of Christ. And the return of Christ is not having Jesus come back with his sheep in the sense like he's coming back as a shepherd. Jesus Christ comes back as a warrior. And when he comes back, he kills every unbeliever on earth. That is a terrifying reality. But it is something that you want people to understand the serious nature of it. So there's a simplicity of the gospel. Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for sins. Believe it. Believe it and you can have eternal life. Turn from your sin, you can have eternal life. But the reality of it is, is that there is something bigger going on than just that simple concept. And look at chapter 20, verse 1. So this is what we have said. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who's of the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss, and he shut it and sealed it over him that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. And after these things, he must be released for a short time. Now, again, what? What? Verse 4, Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast of his, or his image and had not received the mark of their forehead on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Verse 5. And the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Verse 6. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison. And he will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. 
And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And in verse 10, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And so here we go. That's that thousand years. That brings together the entire Old Testament and so much of the New Testament. And what I want you to understand why this is so complex, and we're going to reiterate this. I'm going to give you 10 points here. This is why it's so complex. Number one, eternity didn't start. Now, you think about this. Think about the fact that we just saw the entire world's population of unbelievers die. There's no longer any person who's a unconverted person alive. Let's go. Let's go on into eternity. But instead, we go into this thousand years. How do we know that this isn't eternity? How do we not agree with the people who call themselves Christians but are reformed and say, there's no thousand year period? But when we tell them every time you see the word 1,000, it's a literal 1,000 because every number in Scripture, every number in the book of Revelation, excuse me, when it has a number tied to it, is a literal number. This has to be the millennial kingdom. This has to be where God is bringing all the promises to Israel together because God has said, I am going to bless Israel. Israel has a future. We cannot hold to what's called replacement theology. The church has not replaced Israel. But eternity didn't start. But this gets a little bit deeper because you go, all the promises to Israel are fulfilled. And we're going to study that in our next study where we're going to look at some of those promises. But you have to know, when God basically told Israel in the Old Testament Basically, the entire universe stops if Israel ceases to exist. This is why this week in the newspaper, Israel still makes news. Because the reality of it is, is that God has a future plan for Israel. And Israel is being blessed in this 1,000-year period. You want to come back and we'll go into more of the details next week. But you have to understand, this is why it's complex. Because it isn't just one verse It's from Genesis all the way to Malachi. You've got promises after promises after scripture after scripture. Like I said, 500 different allusions to the Old Testament are in the book of Revelation. And I can't tell you how many of them deal with the the, the coming kingdom. But my goodness, people, how could people put their head in the sand and not understand Acts chapter 1, when Jesus is ascending up to heaven, the disciples are looking up and saying, is it, when, when are you going to start the kingdom? It's this kingdom. This is what God promised. Now, it's 10 verses here in Revelation, but it's so powerful. Number three, this is where it gets a little more complex. Resurrected church people are here in glorified bodies. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you will be here. These 10 verses are describing your life. This is why I talked about the training. How do I know you are here? 1 Thessalonians 4, Revelation 19 talks about the fact that the bride of Christ is made ready for the wedding supper. 
as well as Revelation 19 talks about the fact that the armies of Christ come back with him. We are part of that army. You and I have been told if we're faithful, we will be put in charge of cities. So this is why I talk about the training. Resurrected people are here. Resurrected church people. The only way you will be here is if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ. If you're not born again, you're not going unless you make it through the tribulation. We'll talk about that. But we also know resurrected Old Testament saints are here in glorified bodies. So what this means is Daniel, David, Moses, they will be here. How do I know this? Because Revelation 19 talks about the armies of Christ coming back. Daniel chapter 12 talks about the fact that, that Daniel chapter 12 talks about the fact that the saints, the believers from the Old Testament will be resurrected. And already, if you might feel like, Mike, you've just turned on this giant hose, like a fire hose, and the water's streaming, and the facts are flying, and I get it. This is complex. That's why I said, why is this complex? Because it's pulling so much together. And I, and I struggled, because I know that sometimes people just want, keep it simple, keep it simple. And I got that. But the people who grasp this, I'm telling you, you can be more stronger in your own personal sanctification, your own peace of mind when you understand what's happening in your own life. Number five, all saved Jews from the tribulation are here in non-glorified bodies. This is a non-glorified body. Our bodies right now are non-glorified. How do I know that all non-Jews are together there in the tribulation? Because they're the ones who have to go into the kingdom. They're the ones that have to have babies. Romans chapter 11 talks about how all Israel will be saved. There's a coming time when every Jew will be saved. This has to be the time period. This is the time period. So this is where it gets really crazy because you start to think, wait a second, I'm there, I'm in a glorified body that 1 Corinthians 15 describes because I'm a Christian. I'm in the church today, I'm in this glorified body but there's gonna be non-glorified body people there. Exactly, exactly. And let me just add this group here too, that you understand this. All save Gentiles from the tribulation. So say today, you're listening to me and you reject the message of Jesus Christ and the tribulation starts tonight. The tribulation starts tonight and it goes for seven years and you find a secret hiding place in our church and you survive. You also find one of the Bibles here at the church and you commit your life to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has come back and he kills every unbeliever, but you've committed your life to Christ. You will be there. You will be in a non-glorified body. I will come up and I will welcome you. I'll put my arms around you. I'll think, thank God you lived through the tribulation. How do I know that you as well as the non-Jews are there in non-glorified bodies. Because when we get to verse nine, and we, uh, excuse me, verse eight, you see where it says, these people who are gonna rebel against God are like on the sand on the seashore. We're talking billions of people are gonna be born. You are gonna be their great, great, great grandfathers and grandmothers. You are going to be the ones who are going to have children in this time period And the number of grandchildren and great-grandchildren and great-grandchildren are going to be incredible because it's going to be an incredible time when we're going to talk about there's no more sin 
and overt sin and overt disease. We know from the book of Isaiah, as well as Revelation chapter 2, that Jesus is ruling with an iron rod. We know that Jesus is ruling and that no sin is allowed to get, be gotten away from. When you and I are ruling these cities and somehow, some way, if somebody says, I'm going to kill someone or I'm going to do something bad, immediately Jesus is going to stop them. You and I can get up and we can say, we told you, I told you when I was 60 years old and I, I, and I watched how sin was relentless and it couldn't come back. It, it's always something you have to have your guard on. You people who just didn't get killed by Jesus, you need to understand, this is why you need to convert. Unbelievably, the majority of people who will be listening to us while we're managing these cities will not convert. How do I know? Look at verse 8. Because in Revelation 20, verse 8, the number of people that revolt with Satan are like the sand on the seashore. But Jesus will frustrate them to no end. Because if I'm there and I'm sitting there, I'm Mike Matissick and I've been faking it as a pastor. And well, would be, if I am somebody who has made it and I'm born into, into this thousand years and I have learned how to play the game and I've learned how not to do overt sin, but my friend slips up and whatever he does, maybe he decides he's going to have a little premarital sex or he's going to get a little drunk or he's going he's to maybe punch somebody. Jesus is going to kill them immediately. I'm going to learn him immediately. I am going to learn to be ticked off inside. And when Satan finally comes around, I'm going to finally say, I'm going to get my revenge on Jesus because I cannot fight Jesus on my own at this point because he's ruling with an iron rod. The reason there's going to be so many people around because Isaiah 65 talks about how the lamb and the lion lay down. There's no disease. We can't even begin to imagine this, but what you're going to see is a world with no disease. And, and, and again, you say, Mike, this is just so complex. Again, I get it. What am I supposed to do? This takes the entire Bible and brings it all together rushing. And, and if people haven't been reading their Bibles, you say, well, this is just too much. But the reality of it is, is you have to understand these 10 verses in Revelation 1 through 10 are all telling us all of this is coming together. And what you're going to see is that children born during this time in non-glorified bodies, most will not commit to Jesus. I cannot tell you how important that little star is. Why do I say they will not believe in Jesus? Because, listen, because as we're working through dispensations, different time periods, we're going to talk more about this in a couple weeks, people no longer need faith. Why do they not need faith? Because Jesus will be there. Jesus is on earth they don't have to think, do I have to trust in a Jesus I don't see? As John says at the end, John chapter 20, he says, blessed are those who believe and yet do not see. These people that we just read about that revolt like the sand on the seashore, you can go back, look at verse eight. I'll just read it again. Satan's released and it will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. These people saw Jesus, 
And for the first time, someone can say, if I would have seen Jesus, if Jesus would have just appeared to me, I would have trusted in him, I would have committed. Now, today we may say, I would have believed in him. This is a time period when Jesus is saying, fine, I am going to show you and I'm going to demonstrate to you, it's always been a matter of heart. I could stand before somebody and they could care less. And that's exactly what's going to happen in the tribulation. Jesus is going to stand before people and they are going to care less because their hearts are not converted. And this should give you some incredible fear because you recognize, oh my, unless God gets a hold of my heart and converts me, converts my child, converts my neighbor, they too will be hard-hearted. These people will not commit. They will be the children in non-glorified bodies, sand on the seashore. Now, if you ever go to the seashore and you've seen the sand, it's massive. It's unbelievable that the majority of people will say, forget you, Jesus. I want nothing to do with you. Lastly, Satan is bound during this time, then released at the end. And that is so hard. But we talked about this. And, and so I, we, we, last week, what we did, if you have your sermon notes, I did an outline. And I said that, that chapter 20, verses 1 to 10 goes over these events. And I broke it down into three events. Number one, Satan is bound only temporary, temporarily during the thousand years. Then we talked about the structure of society. And I didn't go into those details. That's what we're going to go over today. Because I wanted to keep the flow of the story of Satan's release, attack, and final elimination. And, and, and the, what I tied it into was a, was a, a, a serial killer. And... I told the story, and if you weren't here last week and you haven't listened to the podcast, I would highly recommend you go back to it. But basically, all of us could grasp this concept. If there was a man, and there was born in 19, I think it was like 83, a man named Duncan, who was a jerk, and, and he becomes this serial killer. And, and when the government finally captures him, and they put him in prison. Instead of giving him a lifetime sentence, they give him a 20-year sentence, and then they release him. And I said, if you would go, and I don't know if any of you went and did a Google search, you would be ready to throw up what the things that he did. The way he tortured people, tortured little boys, tortured little girls. And you'd say, how in the world would you ever let him go? And then when the government finally let him go early, he goes on another murderer spree. And, and, and I think we can all relate to that. You would be aghast. You would be banging your head against the wall. And especially if you come home from church today and next door you meet your new neighbor comes knocking on your door and he says, hi, I'm Mr. Duncan. I'm the serial killer that got released from prison. Can't wait for your children to come out and play. You would be just like, how could you do this government? You would be at the police station like, who was the moron that allowed this man to go? And there would be incredible anger. Not only would you be concerned about your children playing in the backyard, you yourself could no longer go out in your backyard because you've got a serial killer loose. And yet, how many of you have read verses 
21 to 11, and you come and you look at verse 3, look at chapter 20, verse 3, that Satan is captured, he's thrown into the abyss, which was a prison, and it says, and it shut it, and he sealed over him, that he would not deceive the nations any longer, and a thousand years were, were, were completed, and after this, he must be released? And, I, you know, even if you're not <laughs> dispensational, you think, so there, what do you mean? He must be released. You should circle that word, must. What do you mean, must? Must convey something that's necessary, something that's deemed that has to happen. Why do you have to let Satan go? I am told that I cannot get angry at God. I cannot look at him like my government that foolishly let Mr. Duncan go. And Duncan was captured and, and eventually executed, not after he, after he had gotten some little boy and little girl and did vile, vicious, evil things to them. And so, listen, Satan has been captured. God, you got to tell me, what in the world are you doing? I I want him gone. I hate him. I I hate what he's done to my family. He's done things to my country. He's done to this world. Why in the world are you letting him go? And see, the person that just reads verse 3 and jumps to verse 4 and never asks these questions is the person that lives a simplistic Christian life and doesn't get what's going on. You don't understand why God let Satan into the Garden of Eden. You don't know why Satan was allowed to talk to Job. You don't know why Satan was allowed to go to David. And you just live a simplistic Christian life. And for you, you think, I just get on a bike. I just breathe, but you're missing it. You're missing so much. And that's why I'm hoping you're paying attention. And that's why I'm taking this time because I think this is so important. So what we're going to do today is we're going to work on this part here. We understand that Satan's been temporarily captured, but then he's released and then he's finally eliminated. And I would say, hallelujah. Why didn't you do that earlier? But we talked about it last week. And it's hard for us to grasp because when we come to chapter 20 and we look at the fact that God sees this attack and, the, and, and we learn the foolishness of sin because there's no armored tanks, there's no missiles, there's no atomic bombs as these people are all marching on Jerusalem to kill Jesus. Let's get it clear. They're there to kill Jesus. There's no fight. Look at verse 9. The end of it, fire comes down from heaven and devours them. And I think that has got to be one of the most striking verses in all the Bible because you could put there perhaps 20 billion people have just died. Because remember, there's no disease, there's no crime going on, there's no wars. What this world is able to do is able to support 20, maybe million, billion people to be, and boom, the majority of them are just dead. Just like that. And that's got to be one of the most heart-wrenching verses from humanity in all of Scripture. And then we talked about verse 10, where Satan's thrown into prison, and you think to yourself, my goodness, this is finally over. But there is a reality. Remember that Satan was an angelic being who is the greatest being ever created. And there's got to be heartache on God's part that he's turned against God And now he's finally eliminated. And even this week, I heard someone allude to the temptation of Adam and Eve. And and I keep coming back to the temptation of Adam and Eve. Satan, when he was there, 
overtaking the serpent was not an ugly snake. He does not become an ugly snake until after he's cursed. All right, let's get this down. Let's understand. What's the structure of society? Here we go. Verse 4. Look at this. What we get from verse 4. Look. I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and the judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received the mark on their forehead, and had not their hand, and had not come to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. If I'm going to start understanding this is the structure, this is the way things are played out, we are the ones that are on the thrones at the beginning of verse 4. This is you and I. This is the fulfillment of Luke 19. This is the fulfillment of Revelation 2, when God talks about the fact that we're on thrones. We have, as human beings, this is what we've been trained for. We are ruling and reigning. We are also aware that tribulation saints are here. How do we know that? Because of the fact, like I said in in chapter 19, we see the fact that the armies come together. We have the Daniel 12 passage that, that talks about for the Jewish people. They've got to be there as well. And, and the idea here, in the middle of verse 4, it says, And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast of the image and not received the mark. And I, and I point all of this out and say, why does God reiterate that? I truly believe this is for us who are reading this today, and perhaps you're not a believer in Jesus Christ. He's reminding, if you don't become a believer today and you have to be one of the people that goes through the tribulation, it is going to be an incredible test. Because today, if you believe in Jesus Christ, you might go to work and maybe your coworkers shun you. But if you become a believer during the tribulation, and if you wait and you say, well, I'm, I'm going to wait I'm waiting, I'm waiting, I just really want to see if this is true, and it it gets too late, and all of a sudden the rapture occurs. You go into the tribulation, and now it's either believe in Jesus or get your head cut off. And and that's the reason I think he's reiterating that. This is the choice the tribulation saints have. It's stressed. And then, again, why reference the thousand years? Because he's trying to get us to understand this is serious work about this kingdom. Now, someone says, well, there's no thousand-year kingdom mentioned in the Old Testament. Listen, the kingdom is mentioned throughout the Old Testament. The kingdom is mentioned through the New Testament as well. This is the first time. I get it. We're finally learning the duration, how long it is. And I don't know why God is telling us, whether it's a function of, you know, 10 cubed perfectly or 100 squared perfectly, whatever. However, we, we go into numbers. But there is something where he wants us to understand it is for a specific duration. So that's what we get from verse 4. But then we come from verse 5, and we read verse 5, and it says, the rest of the dead didn't come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. So what we learn from verse 5, dead believers from the tribulation are here, okay, but not the unbelievers. So the idea when he says the rest did not come to life, the idea is everyone who's been someone that, that has been a believer in God Throughout any of the generations, they are part of what's called the first resurrection. First is a name of a type, not just chronological. Jesus resurrected. He's of the first resurrection. We're going to resurrect. We're of the first resurrection. How the actual timing works out in the whole return of Christ and the sequence 
it has nothing to do with first. It's the idea of the people that are in this category called the first are the people that go into heaven. There's never a line called the second resurrection, but it is the type of people who get bodies that go into the lake of fire. So the dead believers are here from the tribulation. So if you are a belie- if you reject my message today, you reject the gospel, the tribulation starts tomorrow, you become a believer, but then you get killed by the Antichrist, you are the one who gets resurrected and you will be in a glorified body in this time period. You need to understand that's why there's different resurrections. First resurrection, second resurrection. You don't wanna be part of the second resurrection group. Whenever they get raised up, they get bodies that can't handle hell. And again, the thousand years is stressed. Well, let's look at the last verse, verse six. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. So, okay, all right, so I forgot this part. Remember the church is here with the first resurrection. So now, um, even though Old Testament saints, even though not mentioned, Old Testament saints have to be here as well, okay? So now we go into verse six. Blessed, this will be a good place. Look at verse six, it begins, blessed, blessed. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part. To be holy, you have to be set apart. You have to be in a good position. When he says in verse six, blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God. Remember, right now, we don't have priests. Priests aren't needed because a priest is a go-between. But this is going to be like a new work for people because you and I, who are representing God during the tribulation, I mean, during the thousand-year reign, are going to be representatives. We're going to be people who are functioning in a priest responsibility during the thousand years, and we will work for Christ. And look what it says again. We will reign for him for a thousand years. And again, the thousand years is stressed. So that's the structure. And I say, you know, again, you've got a lot of complexity there. And I know it can sound really overwhelming, but it's fascinating because it brings all of the Bible together. So what do I want to do with this, okay? I want to remember that the second death is ominous. The second death, because you look at that line and he says in verse six, over these, the second death. What are you talking about? Well, all of you need to understand, the Bible has said the wages of sin is death. You commit one sin, you have to physically die. But here now it becomes clear that there's something called the second death, which we're going to elaborate on as we go further into this chapter. The second death is being thrown into the lake of fire. When he says in verse 6, over these, the second death has no power. If you've been resurrected in what's called the first resurrection, you can never face death again. And the way to get there today is to become a believer. Commit your life to Jesus Christ today. Be someone that believes because what's coming is horrible. And unsafe people are not going to be in this kingdom and they're surely not going to be in heaven. So we want to make sure that you're born again today. So where do we go with this? Well, how to make this simple. This is what I want to do. I just want to make it understood that number one, what God is doing is getting you ready to be a worker in this kingdom. 
That's it. I'm telling you, and, and maybe for you, the light bulb's going on. You've been someone as a Christian. You've been living your whole life. You're thinking, what, what does God want me to do? Well, God is using you and watching you how faithful you are. That's why he says the more faithful people get more cities. You say, well, I just want to play in heaven. Listen, I'm just going to tell you right now, you know, you, you may not want to be a ruler. You may not want to be somebody that has responsibility, but I think when it comes to actually being there, you're going to want to be. And so I'm just letting you know, the people who go to work for God today, the people who use their time, talent, and treasure faithfully for God today are the people who are going to be rewarded come heaven time, okay? And so you've got to remember, make sure you're there because this is a blessed situation. This is the start of God's bringing his kingdom to earth, bringing heaven to earth, and it is a good place. Not everyone gets there. The only people who get there, remember, isn't it interesting when Jesus says in John 3, unless a man is born again, he doesn't go into what? He doesn't say heaven, in the kingdom of heaven. You want to be there. Number three, make sure your resources are there. Your time, your talents and treasures. When Jesus says store up your treasures in heaven where moth and rust don't destroy, he's not trying to just be somebody who's trying to take stuff from you today. He's trying to get you to plan appropriately. It's like, you know, if, if, if you can either have a pile of cash today, but tomorrow the United States currency goes in the tank and it's worth nothing. And believe me, that's happened for people in Germany. If you've ever seen the pictures of people carrying wheelbarrows of money, they thought, well, so great one day, but the next day it's absolutely worthless. God is saying, I want you to think ahead. This is the kingdom we're getting ready for, people. Make sure you're using your time, talents, and treasures. The wise people get this. And then finally, understand the training you're getting now. Now, what is this dealing with? Again, I can't help but reiterate. I keep trying to get you to understand. This is why when you're 60 years old, 70 years old, 80 years old, when you're 20 years old and things happen and, and all of this is trying, God is trying to show you, apart from my goodness, there is no goodness. Apart from, from a world in which there is no sin, sin is going to be relentless. And you're going to be in a world where there is no disease, there is no overt sin, and you're going to be the one that's going to be working as a priest, conveying to the people who are there, listen, you need to understand how bad life was when sin with Satan's influence was on my life. And you'll be someone that's got that charge, your responsibility. In the meantime, I didn't put this up there. Satan's not bound anymore, not bound now. And he roams around the world like a roaring lion. And if you think that you can handle him, you're a fool. Satan is terrifying. He's relentless. He doesn't care about any of us. And all he wants you to do is destroy our lives. God says to put on the armor of God. I'm asking you to faithfully read passages like that, pray daily, and to be somebody that is recognizing we are in a battle to the end of our last breath. It's simple as riding a bike, right? And I tell you, when I talk about the simplicity of breathing, the reality of it is, is when we talk about breathing, you need to understand as much as you would like your life to go smoothly, it will never go smoothly because the training requires you to be trained until your last breath. 
And I'm telling you, if you say, I'm going to reject this, I don't want any of this, and if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, the only thing I can tell you is what's coming is the second death, the lake of fire, and it's permanent. You don't want to be there. Let's pray. Father, help us to be people who understand this. And I pray, Lord, as the water hose went out, maybe somebody did get a cup of water, and they did begin to understand. And this has elevated their understanding of where history has been going. God, it's hard for us to think that you would capture Satan and let him go. It would, it's hard for us to think, why in the world did you ever, ever let Satan into the Garden of Eden? What is your plan? What is your purpose? There's something bigger here that I need to grasp. And I'm hoping, God, that this has spurred people on to think about these things. But mostly to think, too, do I have a relationship with you? And I pray, God, that people do. And they turn to Jesus Christ if they've never done that before. Amen.